If Bitcoin ends the year, let's just say it ends where it is right now, and you look at the last 10 calendar years of macro asset performance, Bitcoin's going to be at the top of that list for seven out of 10 years. And that doesn't mean that financial advisors and institutional investors are immediately going to adopt it overnight, but you're starting to build this track record where it's just hard to ignore. Like you're going to have to have a view on it. If you don't want to allocate half a percent or a percent to it, you're now going to have to have a good reason. And you can't just say because it's a tool of bubble that that doesn't work anymore. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back in to Blue Collar Bitcoin. This week, Josh and myself, Dan, were joined by John Haar. John is a Wall Street veteran who spent 13 years at Goldman Sachs. He held roles in institutional sales and fixed income portfolio management. He now works at Swan Bitcoin as the managing director of Swan Private. On BCB, we often talk about what we call the four eyes of personal Bitcoin adoption as one learns what's really going on here. At first, Bitcoin seems idiotic. Second, it begins to seem interesting. Third, it becomes important. And finally, many end up viewing it as an imperative component of their portfolio. In this hour and a half, John takes us deep into the thought process of legacy finance and where the biggest players in that space currently reside within this adoption trajectory. We also discuss topics including reestablishing the lines between saving and investing, John's reasons to be bullish on Bitcoin right now, the future of passive investing, the benefits and dangers of trusting quote-unquote experts, Wall Street holiday parties pre- and post-GFC, and much more. Speaking of the holidays, they are here. And if you're shopping for a Bitcoiner, or hell, even a no-coiner, just stop wasting your time perusing worthless nonsense. Whether they know it yet or not, your loved ones want Bitcoin. Load up a SATS card or an open dime with some Bitcoin and stuff it in a stocking. Give someone a cold card or a tap signer and start them on their self-custody journey. Deliver a pleb a block clock mini or micro that they've salivated over for years. Juicy discounts on a variety of these wonderful Bitcoin goodies can be found at our BCB CoinKite affiliate link down in the show notes. And as always, you can use code BCB, that's BCB, for a cheerful discount on the most reliable protector of Bitcoin private keys on the planet. Santa's favorite signing device, the cold card. Lastly, a reminder that you can also use code BCB for 10% off tickets to the Bitcoin 2024 conference in Nashville next July. They're going to go up in price from here to the event, so shit or get off the pot. Okay, kick back, unwind, and enjoy a substantive banger with John Har. Uh, just before we hit record, we were talking about John just has a six-week-old, and what I, was, I want to hit record before we talk about this because it could get funny. That is the best way... I think Dan will agree with this. That is the best way to describe what being a firefighter is like. It's like having a six week old baby forever, Ugh. forever. Yeah. You never sleep. You're up at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, and you're trying to recover the next day. I think Dan, you had a rough night again last night, right? Yeah. Here's the thing. We got to caveat this because we get so much, John, like we have a very, very cool schedule in a lot of ways. This we work. 100 days a year in our contracts. So we have 265 days off. Dan, don't tell people this. Come on. 
I'm, I'm doing it, dude. We're far enough in. We've built enough trust with the audience. We're going to fucking level with you folks. There are nights where you sleep straight through the night. This is what makes calls at night so painful, especially when you're a, when you're a new dad. Is you, You're sitting there. You just slept like shit for two nights because you have a baby. And you go, I could get the best sleep of the week tonight. I could, I could do nine straight hours here at the firehouse, or I could sleep zero. And mm. that reality is part of the reason you sleep so bad though, is because you know that these red lights and these tones are about to go off and you're going to have to rush off. So, uh, yes, you're right, Josh, though. We signed up for something pretty fucked up because it is kind of like being a first year dad every third night for 30 years. Yeah. So I got something that I think you guys will appreciate. Um, besides this t-shirt, which is a New York city fire department t-shirt, uh, nice. My uncle is actually a retired uh, firefighter in New York City, so he's gotten me some swag over the years. I figured today was a good day to wear this one. Repping it. Very we cool. love to see it. We love to see it. But in addition to this shirt, I got some, this, I heard this from my uncle, and it's this funny how this is coming up related to babies. He was saying that he noticed the younger guys at his firehouse when they were younger, single, or, or married, but with no kids, they would always be like you know, either right on time or like a little bit late for their shift, like, you know, cutting it very close, right? Yeah. But then he said when they would have a new baby at home, they were like, you know, 15 minutes early or like always like getting to the firehouse a little earlier. And he chalked it up to like, yeah, it's because they have absolute madness in their home uh-huh. right now. They're like, I'm going to go to the firehouse. I'm going <laughs> to yeah, be 15 exactly. minutes early. For sure. And he said it was a trend that just kept <laughs> happening and happening. There's so many times when I have a project, like I, in the last week, I've been changing out all the doors and trimming my house because it's, I've been here for like three years. It's a time to do it. And I've been putting in like eight hour days in my house, like busting my ass. I'm like, I need to get to the firehouse, you know, do some training, chill for a while, go on a call, <laughs> eat some lunch, like. This this work at my house is real fucking work. The firehouse is pretty chill, you know. Like I want to, I need to get there. I totally understand that mentality. It is a reflection too of just how fun the vibe is. I mean, it it, it is as fun as you might think it is for the listener. Or you've seen a TV show or whatever. I mean, f- shift change in the morning at the firehouse is really fucking special. It's hilarious. It's basically a sitcom, and. Uh, yeah, when it's mayhem at home and kids are screaming, you start to be like, hmm, that is pretty fun over there. And there are quiet days. There's days that absolutely kick your ass. The shift I had yesterday was literally nonstop, almost for 24 hours nonstop. But then there's other shifts where it's just like, whoa, it, it's dead. I know that's true, too, because I was texting Dan a couple of things about what's going on with with this podcast. I didn't hear back from him for like four hours. And I'm thinking, oh, Sunday at the firehouse and he's not answering like they must be slayed they just get they just got filleted open all day long to your guys point you know it might be mayhem at home with a little kid but when you're a firefighter yeah maybe it sounds nice to rush into the firehouse for your shift but you guys might some days be going from mayhem at home yes right into mayhem at the fire department so you get that that's a tough one but you're doing it with a group of people that you really love and trust I mean, that's what makes any kind of misery fun. Yeah. Anyone that's been on a canoe trip, camping trip, backcountry, pick something in your life. That can either be the worst experience of your life or one of the best. And for us, we get to do all this crazy shit with with guys that we, for the most part, really, really like being around. Yep. That matters a lot, for it sure. Hey, we got we got rigs moving in the background, by the way. I just heard some sirens. That's just Dan. Dan's got a button on his keyboard to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> this this is just New York City sounds. It's funny you said that. Like, I'm so immune to it. I don't even notice it. Yeah, I noticed it too. So I was listening to you on Simply Bitcoin, John, and you were describing your background and journey prior to Goldman even, like in the 2008 great financial crisis. And uh, it's very similar. I, there's a lot of parallels to like what I had going on because back in those, during that period of time from like 2003 to 2012, I worked at a big financial company. I was a blue collar dude there. I, I built furniture and cubicles and like basically we were the ones, there was a small team of people on this huge campus. It was actually Discover Financial and it's in Chicago. In that building, Morgan Stanley owned them at the time. And I had free reign of these buildings because I was just like the fix it guy. I'd walk around and I knew a lot of people all over the place. So I had the ability to walk around and talk to some of the people that had some, what people thought were great financial minds at the time. The whole world is collapsing around this thing. Like people are getting fired. They're doing layoffs. It's wild. And I am talking to some people in Morgan Stanley who I think like these guys must know what's going on. They must have a real good read on this. These are the financial experts, right? And I have like access to these people. What a great fortuitous thing. And talking to these guys, I quickly realized like not that I had any deep insights in finance at the time, but they didn't know what was going on either. I mean, they'd give you an answer, but I would think about it and like it doesn't really get to the fundamental problems here. At least I didn't think so. And that kind of started my journey into finding mises.org and Austrian economics. And then being very infatuated with gold for a long time, from like 2007 until 2015 or so, I think I mostly sold most of the gold in 2015 that I owned. It was just an infatuation with what is the fundamental problem going on here? And in my assessment of it, it was the monetary system itself. Mistakes were made by me at the time. And I think a lot of people, everyone thought this could be the thing that finally does cause a turnover of this monetary system. A lot of Austrians in that period of time thought that, like many times in, in finance, the old saying that you can be right, but you can be right at the wrong time and it doesn't mm. really matter. The other thing about working at a huge financial institution like that, and I want to hear your thoughts on Goldman in this aspect, they brought in hundreds, I'm talking hundreds of midgets, of super hot inter yeah, midgets, hot interns in the summertime while I'm in my early 20s with free reign to the entire campus and a really, really nice fitness center at lunch to go to spin class. That was the best reason to work at that place. <laughs> and, the, and the midgets <laughs> with the target. And the midgets, yeah. We're, we'll get to that. We're getting to the midgets. Pre-financial crisis, Wall Street. So you actually saw a little bit different Wall Street than I did. I started in 2009. That's when I graduated college. So like right after the financial crisis, and a place like Goldman still had the reputation at that time of like this really prestigious Wall Street bank, like everyone's a genius that works there. They work on these fancy deals and make amazing investments. And it still kind of had that. It still does have some of that, but I think it's fading over time. Um, but in terms of some of the excesses and like things they would spend money on, a lot of that got cut off after the financial crisis. So you actually have a perspective, and I would hear stories from people. I, I actually have stories. So at Discover, prior to the financial crisis, they literally they had a, a Christmas party they would throw every year. It wasn't as opulent as throwing midgets at targets or anything like that. I wish that was there, but I mean, they spent millions, and I'm talking multiple millions on a Christmas party every year. They had ice sculptures brought in that they would put uh, shrimp on 
They had like a, the entire campus was turned into a giant party. It was cool. They had go-go dancers. They had, they had like giant buffets that people were getting completely shithouse drunk and having sex in closets. Like this is not, this, this actually happened. Like I, I didn't see the sex, but I saw and heard about it or I've just heard about it, but it was wild. <laughs> and then after the, this, this is hundred percent true. They hired taxis to line up and drive everybody home, which was a really nice little perk. After the financial crisis, gone. That that party, st- gone. So not only was it gone from a spending perspective, because they were like, hey, we almost went bankrupt and we've got to cut our expenses and all that stuff. But from a reputation perspective, that was huge at Goldman. Like th- this part I experienced. Mm. They were literally telling us, like room full of people who just joined Goldman for the first time, be really careful when you're out in public. Like literally telling us not to like be on the subway or out on the street talking about how you work at Goldman because the spotlight's on you guys now. You know, we had our executives being grilled by people on Capitol Hill and they were like literally like keep a a low profile. Um, So all of that pre-financial crisis stuff completely switched. Our holiday party was like, you know, a, a table that they rolled in within the building that had like beer and wine on it, it within the building. Like that was the holiday party and like 2010 Goldman Sachs. So Sounds everything completely changed in just a year or two. Did you hear mm-hmm. stories about what that holiday party looked like prior to that? I'm curious if it echoes oh, what 100%. I saw. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 All the people that were there and a little bit older, they were just laughing to themselves. Like, I can't believe that we're just like in the auditorium with each other now, like drinking a beer. Like this was crazy three years ago. It's like, well, at least I can still fuck the secretary. There's always that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just can't <laughs> do it at the holiday party. Yeah. Glass half full perspective. Um, so I can already sense and having read your pieces, which are really good. We're going to link them in the notes. <clears throat> One of them is how legacy finance perceives Bitcoin. And we're going to do a fair amount of ripping on Wall Street and being a little bit too cool for Wall Street. It's popular in Bitcoin to be like, these guys have no clue what they're doing. And we figured out the solution, which is maybe partially accurate. But I want to start out on a slightly different angle for you and ask you, What did you take away from 13 years at Goldman Sachs? Because the people that work at these Wall Street firms, they are not idiots. They're wildly intelligent. They have access to a tremendous amount of tools. They are doing high-level analysis that is often productive. I know that they have access to a spigot. Many people don't. But let's go to the side of what, what did they do right? What did you take away? What would you advise people in Bitcoin to pay more attention to about how some of these legacy big boys make their way around. Yeah. So you said something that I was thinking, which is there are a lot of things, these people who work on Wall Street, but they're not idiots. Um, They are high performing people. They can execute like crazy. They know their particular industry, um, the details of that industry. They could talk for a long time about a particular industry and like just be incredibly impressive. They know all these details. But the takeaway for me was, even though they know all of these details about a particular industry, it doesn't mean that they, one, can know where that industry is headed in the future. Because it's one thing to be able to talk about your industry, what's happened in the recent past, what's happening right now. It's another thing to say, what is this industry going to look like in one, three, five, 10, 30 years? So forecasting is difficult, even if you're a quote unquote expert about your industry. And then number two, they don't really look beyond their little niche 
within Wall Street mm. and try to examine the system as a whole. So those are like two huge takeaways, but it is important to remember. So this like, you get slapped in the face with this reality a few different times. Like the housing crisis is obviously one of them. And Josh, you, you nailed that. Like you're asking these people, oh, they work at this big financial firm. Like they must have a good idea of why this is happening and how it's going to get resolved. The answer is no, they don't. But another one I could give people that I saw firsthand was um, 2015, 2016, which we called the energy crisis because for companies that worked in the energy industry, it truly was a crisis because the oil price went to like 30 bucks a barrel. And all these companies were positioned for oil to be like, you know, above 80 forever. That's like kind of what the thought was. Oops. So, but what's amazing about this is you could have talked to an energy analyst and not just at my former firm, but like across Wall Street and just said, hey, you know, give me a data dump on everything you know about the energy industry. And this person could have gone on for hours about oil fields around the world, how much it costs to extract a barrel from every oil field, uh, production by country, active oil rig counts around the world, different data releases and when they come out, uh, ENP, that's exploration and production companies, like how much they're spending on CapEx and how that's going to flow through, um, OPEC statements, how the energy industry is being regulated. And you'd hear all this. Um, it, it's so much more than that too. It's like how much debt and equity each company has, where's the debt trading, where's the equity trading, all this stuff, right? You would hear them and you'd be like, this person knows everything about the energy industry. And they are a true expert. But then what happens in 2015, 2016? Did they see that? Did they correctly forecast that oil was going to drop to 30 bucks a barrel? And all of these companies were going to be in this massive, stressful position. Some of them got downgraded from investment grade to high yield, which is a huge deal. Some of them just straight up went bankrupt. Did they see that coming? No, they didn't. Like we had some of our largest overweights were in like offshore drillers where the cost of extracting a barrel of oil for them is the highest in the industry. They need over $80 a barrel oil just to be a little bit profitable. So the reason I go into all that is just because these people, just objectively speaking, they could talk to you for hours with their knowledge of the industry and it would be super impressive. But that doesn't mean that they're going to correctly forecast what the industry is going to look like a year from now or five years from now. And that has just really slapped me in the face over and over again, working on Wall Street. One of the parts of your piece and something you just alluded to that really resonated with me was hinting at the cautiousness that needs to be exercised when you're really, really specialized. Just because you know one niche area in tremendous depth, and and, and that does add value. Like at, at Goldman Sachs, you need a experts in a bunch of different fields, but there are people that get buried so far in the weeds that we take for granted they don't actually have an awesome thousand foot view. Like, like an analogy I could draw is that a podiatrist who's 15 years out of medical school is not going to be nearly as good at general diagnosis as an ER physician. They're in one specific lane. They're not exercising those skills across a wide spectrum. And it makes me think of a story from my life, which is probably going to sound adorable to you and people that actually work on Wall Street or in finance. But I have a very uh, good friend that once said to me, he's a very successful trader. He said, we were talking macro and he made the comment, you probably know more than I do. And I was like, 
what are you talking about? And this, this is someone that does respect my take on a lot of things and knows that I spend realistically, not to exaggerate, through the years, thousands and consistently because of this podcast and my interest, just regularly intaking more broad view macro info. And I'm like, there might actually be some truth to that. As crazy as that sounds, he's, he's very, very good at a fairly specialized sector in credit. And he has a family. He doesn't have time to take in all this. So the point there is giving tons of credit to somebody just because of their title or the organization they're associated with depends on their role. Maybe if it's Jury and Tim or at Fidelity, he's kind of paid to think as big picture as possible. But if it's somebody that's really stuck in a specific, specific, you know, derivatives area, hedging strategies, um, some specific form of financial modeling, that person may not have as good a read on the macro picture as Joe yeah. Blow, who, who, who spends a lot of time on it. Well, also, they might not have been taught. I think you, you touched on this either in one of your pieces, John, that I was reading or in your, in one of your interviews, but a lot of people never got like a, a baseline understanding of what the monetary system is or how it works. Like <clears throat> a lot of finance econ degrees mm. don't have that information. And once you have reached a certain plateau in your career or in your schooling, you don't want to rip everything down and go back to first principles and start all over because number one, it doesn't really make you any money. You're not really incentivized to do that. And number two, that means that your entire worldview and everything that you've built to that point is just thrown in, well, potentially thrown in the garbage can, especially from their perspective. So there's two very strong incentives that keep people that are high performer, very intelligent people that are very successful from moving their way back to maybe the very foundation of this whole thing is somehow off. Hmm. But I, I don't want to know that. And I don't really genuinely need to because it's working for me anyway. So there's just a, there's a lot of friction there, I think, in moving back and trying to understand this from first principles, which is very, very necessary for you to come to the conclusion that Bitcoin is such a magnificent piece of work. And I think that's why I, I was very lucky to be in that financial realm at the time without all of the financial education, because it allowed me to not have any of those monkeys on my back. I, I just started from like, let's find out who actually knows these things. And, and Mises was a great place to start. For sure. Fresh eyes is, is very valuable in, in these types of things. And Dan, you brought up the analogy you could draw to people in the medical field. And I, I think that one is super powerful for explaining what goes on in the world of Wall Street and finance. Um, the, and it's funny, the example you've used, like I've used a similar one. If you need to have your hand operated on because you broke a bone, like you need mm. hand surgery or something, you want to go to a hand surgeon who's been doing hand surgeries for 10, 20 years, you know, whatever. That's the person you want to go to, not a generalist. But you wouldn't get the hand surgery and then start asking the hand surgeon like, hey, can you give me some tips on optimal diet yeah. and oh, you know, I've got sunlight? This rash and, right on my thigh right here. Can you look at that? Yeah. And, and like it sounds ridiculous, right? But we kind of do that because we're, we're like, oh, they're a doctor. Like they know about nutrition and sleep and light and circadian rhythm. And the analogy is even it goes deeper because the same thing with finance. Even the people within the medical community, like it may be obvious that we shouldn't be asking the hand surgeon about nutrition once you really think about it. But then even the generalists within the medical community, I, I think we probably all agree that they don't do a good job 
of letting people know what is the proper diet and sleep and light and circadian rhythm and all this stuff. And the same thing's true in finance and economics. If you go to the guy who's the energy analyst and he can tell you all this stuff about the energy sector, like you shouldn't be asking him how the monetary system works at a fundamental level because he's never really thought about it. But then even when you go to the people, the economists who, you know, Ivy League um, educated economists, I think they're not really, the mainstream answers they give people are not really sufficient either. Um, And yeah, just on your point, Josh, with the people who, if you bring up these fundamental questions, if I did with my colleagues at Goldman, which I did many times, so I'm speaking from firsthand experience here, you would get I think two big groups of answers from people. If you if you started to say like something crazy to them, like, hey, have you ever heard of Austrian economics and you know sound money and how the monetary system would work under a gold standard, how it did work? You would get two big categories of responses. One would be kind of pretending that they know that that's bad. They're like, oh, we're like enlightened. We've moved past that. Like having the central bank is a good thing. Like thank God for the central bank. Or you would get someone, and by the way, on that first one, they couldn't go deep with you on like the history of money. They're just kind of repeating things they've heard. The other one you would get would kind of be apathy from people. They would look at you kind of like, dude, why are we even talking about this? You know, we manage bond portfolios and like, you're not going to change the financial um, system overnight. And like, don't you just want to come to work and do a good job and get paid and go home? Like, why are we even talking about this? So that's kind of how people look at it, it was really hard to even get people to care about mm. the financial system and like the underpinnings and these fundamental arguments. Yeah. Your boss went to a meeting afterwards. He's like, this guy, John, I think we're going to have to get rid of him. He's asking too many questions. He's <laughs> trying to be a think boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is a message there to us in Bitcoin too, of everybody kind of gets trapped in certain groups and starts just repeating hollow tropes. Think about the things you say about Bitcoin. Do you actually understand what you're saying or are you just regurgitating what somebody said on a podcast last week? That's 100% true. We, uh, yeah, we need to be mindful of that. Like, You don't want to become the thing that we're criticizing, mm-hmm. for sure. That's important. And then the other thing I do think it's important to note in this conversation is we're kind of talking about how the experts can be wrong. And that is true. They can be wrong about like really important topics that they're supposed to know about. But you still don't want to take a blind rule going into yes. any situation and say, oh, therefore, this expert said this. Now I just don't believe him because I don't believe experts. Yeah. That's also not a good rule to apply to things. Speaking of experts, I was, I was paying a lot of attention to Bernanke and what he would talk about, especially during that period of time. And he would be making a statement. And then within weeks, he would be proven 100% wrong. Like It was so absurd how quickly like he would make he made confident statements about how the financial crisis or the uh the housing crisis is not going to move its way into uh, or it's the subprime is contained i think that's what he said and then like yeah. weeks later it blows up he was proven wrong so quickly so often at the, uh, during that period of time that it was it's amazing people still took it serious after after that it really was i do love that piece of nuance though john absolutely love it in that you can't go so far in one direction that you don't have your eyes wide open. There are many <laughs> areas of life where you need to trust experts. In our field, I don't know what analogy to draw here. If you have ventricular tachycardia and you're lucky enough to still have a pulse, you may be too cool for it, but if we don't give you amiodarone and probably cardiovert you, you're going to go meet your maker. 
You know what I mean? If you have lymphoma, you're going to need chemotherapy or you're going to go meet your maker just to draw some medical analogies. And so I know that finance isn't a perfect science, but to just completely disregard, for example, let's go the most dogmatic, anybody who doesn't understand the value proposition of Bitcoin is completely naive. It's not like academia is totally worthless as much as we shit on kind of mainstream higher ed within Bitcoin. I, I just think I like that you brought that through and you made that comment in your writing and you made it here of, let's be careful not to draw a completely black and white rule and totally disregard everything sure. they say, but let's approach their ideas with the same degree of skepticism we would anything else as thoughtful thinkers. You know what really bothers me? And I think what bothers a lot of people who start having this disregard for expert opinions is the way that they present them so pompously as if mm -hmm. there is no alternative and they are 100% right. Like science and academia has gotten so sure of itself that it's lost the plot in, in a lot of ways, in my opinion. Like there's no, like when COVID was a good example, when people are saying things like trust the science, <laughs> if you fucking think that say uh, the phrase trust science is antithetical to the to science itself that is <laughs> yeah that just blows my mind because science is the idea that you're supposed to question everything down to the most fundamental levels that is science science isn't some magical wizard that just is right all the time like the history of science is filled with people that were 100% wrong but had a good trajectory and then someone else filled in the blank and then we branched off to the correct path because it was proven or you know as close to proven as we can get that I'm just my little diatribe there for talking no, for, shit. for sure. And I feel like they, they adjusted it at some point to, it was trust the science or follow the science and fo follow the science is not really much better. It's like, now I'm just like a follower and, and you just like, tell me what the science is. And I go say, okay. Right. And then if you question anything, you are slammed in the, you're, it's like a gopher <laughs> popped out of a hole and you get hit with a sledgehammer. Like that's not how science is supposed to work. Yeah. 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 On, on the bright side, I think the financial crisis, there's so many Bitcoiners that trace their roots in learning about economics and the monetary system to the financial crisis. Uh, whoever Satoshi was created Bitcoin, like that was a huge motivation for creating Bitcoin. Um, and then to your point, Josh, just about COVID, obviously not financial, really financial related, at least directly, but I think that did open a lot of people's eyes to say, okay, maybe I shouldn't just believe what this person said on the TV. For sure. Huge move forward. And, the, and there is increased dose of, of skepticism in society in general towards the powers that be that overall, I think is a healthy and a helpful move. I want to get into your thoughts on just Wall Street's general perceptions of Bitcoin. Let's start with where you think legacy finance. And I know that's a huge wide term that we kind of are throwing out and it's, it's hard to even know what that means. But if you were to try to describe where you think most people in legacy finance are in their understanding of an interest in Bitcoin currently, and then maybe let's get into the trending the, the change in tone that uh, is, is very obvious to us and maybe less obvious to them. I would say firstly, I think it's easier to describe what the common retorts were five, six years ago. It was Bitcoin's a scam. Bitcoin is a tulip bubble. Um, and it's just not going to last. And, you know, Jamie Dimon has the famous quote, anyone who buys it, I would fire them or whatever he said, something yeah, like that. Say something like that. Yeah. So that was kind of what everyone repeated back then. It was just like, you're an idiot. If you get involved with this, like you deserve what's coming kind of a thing. 
And fast forward a few years and 2021, um, ironically, the Wall Street really only feels compelled to talk about it during price times of price appreciation. I think that's mostly true. But when when the price was collapsing in 22, they did talk about it. But I guess my point is like 2017, you heard a lot about it on Wall Street. Then price collapsed and you didn't really hear much at all from like 2018, 2019. Then like late 2020 into 2021, they feel kind of compelled to have a view on it just because it's like this hot topic. So in 2021 and 2022, the talking points became okay, well, you know, Bitcoin has grown and it, it didn't go to zero. So I guess it's not a tulip bubble, but it's really correlated with the NASDAQ. And, you know, wh- if you could just buy QQQ, why would you buy Bitcoin? And it's really correlated with Fed policy. So, you know, you could just make other investments based on your views on Fed policy and, and you don't need Bitcoin. And like, there, maybe there's like a tiny hint of truth to that where like, yeah, there, there are some investments you could make that are correlated with Fed policy. And if you time them right, like you'll do well, fine. And they directionally move as Bitcoin moves. But there's no recognition from them when they say, okay, I was the guy who six years ago told you it's a Ponzi scheme and a tulip bubble. And now I'm telling you it's correlated with tech exactly. stocks. Like right. that is a complete jump. And like your prior thinking was wrong. And there's nothing wrong. You're allowed to change your mind. But like, can we just acknowledge the massive leap that you guys have now made in this? Um, so they don't really have that. And that, so their critiques, a few others that they say, they still think like the government's going to shut it down to some degree. They'll be like, oh, how is the government going to allow this? I hear that one a lot. I'm what, and then tw- oh, go sorry ahead. to interrupt you. Um, what you just said, just a, something to think about with human nature. Whenever you find that somebody was completely wrong, it's a very rare person that will ever admit it because it's not that they, it's a lot of times that they don't even remember it because yeah. people don't like to remember being wrong. Yes. You know what I mean? It's almost like a gambler who always tells you about their wins, but never tells you about their losses. It, and it's just a, it's one of our weaknesses as people in general. Like we never talk about our dumb ideas after we made them five years ago or two years ago. Always the ones that win. Have your wives ever reminded you of something that you said and you're like, Holy fuck, I yeah. did say that. Holy shit. And it's like you completely blocked it out of your head. That happens for me from time to time where it's it really is it like selective amnesia on the dumb shit you say. Yep. Yeah. This this is a human nature thing. It's it's true. So yeah, I I think we do need to all these criticisms that we and we might be correct in using these criticisms with, with people, but we definitely do need to remember we may have done this ourselves in other areas of our life where we might do this in the future with Bitcoin. Like we might have some take about Bitcoin that just turns out to be very wrong. And it would be good for us, I think, to admit that to people. For sure. Um, if you want to keep your reputation, right? Like you don't want to be the per that's like long-term greedy, in my opinion. There's that phrase like long-term greedy, right? It's like something might not benefit you in the short term, but in the long term, people will, your followers, your people you communicate with will appreciate if you can admit that you're wrong. They will have yeah. more, they put more stock in what you tell them going forward. So exactly. Yeah. Might, might be hard to do, but, um, so sorry to interrupt you. Continue on about, uh, their transition. All good. Yeah. So the other thing that was really difficult for wall street to, it, it just threw a total wrench in their potential understanding of Bitcoin is all the things that happened in 2022. So from Celsius to Voyager to BlockFi, whatever others, and then culminating in the FTX collapse 
this introduced so much confusion. Um, it, it's, it's frustrating because I had conversations with people just in, within the last six months. And one, one example, caught up with a guy who's been working on Wall Street for 25 years. Great guy. One of my favorite people that I worked with, just even though I don't work at the company anymore, he's still there. You know, I'll catch up with him every now and then. And mostly we talked about what's going on at the company, uh, who he's working with, just like catching up, shooting the shit. But then at the end, I, I couldn't help. I wanted to know. So I'm like, so just like, by the way, um, stuff that's happened in the last three years, COVID, the response to COVID is the Fed, Fed's balance sheet increases by $3 trillion in the course of three months. Um, we add, you know, X amount of debt. Uh, inflation is kind of going crazy. Um, Russia gets cut out of the financial system. The Canadian trucker protests. These people are protesting and having their bank accounts shut down. I was like, you just look at all that. You're obviously aware these things happen. Does any of that make you think that a neutral digital fixed supply monetary asset outside the system controlled by governments and banks like might have some value? And his answer was, he like definitively said no. And what he cited was, and after seeing all this stuff that happened with SBF and FTX, I'm even more confident about that. Wow. And I know you guys are just like, you know, probably, you know, all the responses that you could give to someone, but he could not separate Bitcoin as a network, as a monetary asset, as a protocol from what he was seeing in the news about SBF and FTX being a true scam, a platform that collapsed. He just, and I tried a little bit, but couldn't get through to him. And this is someone who's been investing for 25 years. He's been on Wall Street for 25 years. Very smart guy. Yeah. Um, so anyway, my point in saying that is what happened in 2022 set them back a while. Mm. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of learning that needs to be ha happen. This is why it is, I mean, we've said this before, uh, we're, now, we're nowhere near considering ourselves experts in the space. No, we're learning as we go, as everyone else is. But when you are close to an expert or you know, very knowledgeable about a certain sector, like I view ourselves as that for Bitcoin, you can recognize these opportunities in, a very, in very fine detail. Like most of the people that are kind of cursory following what's going on here, even if they were interested, they're suddenly no longer interested right at the time when it's the best time to be purchasing and acquiring as much Bitcoin as you can simply because they're just following it tertiarily. When you are in the space and you understand the fundamentals that FTX, all of this clown bullshit that happened on top of that whole thing, nothing affected Bitcoin fundamentally, nothing. Yeah. And so that is the time when you need to move in with confidence, even if you're not YOLOing with, I mean, we would never say to put your life savings in something. Just because you know you're very confident in it, you'd always be wrong. But that's the time to really up your DCA or really move in with more confidence while the market is kind of shaking. Totally. I have two comments here. One is that what I'm about to say, I genuinely mean. I think when I first started saying it, it was more lip service to to try to sound more resilient in the bear market than I actually was. But now that we're kind of showing signs of coming out of it. I really do view these clownish crypto exchange collapses as a tremendous opportunity for guys like us. And if we're just to go our inner circle, a lot of people we're close to. Like I was at the firehouse yesterday with a lot of dudes that are stacking Bitcoin and they got a lot more Bitcoin 
over the last three years because of the conflation of Bitcoin and crypto. Like it is, as we say in Bitcoin all the time, but it's really true. It is the camouflage right now that will eventually wear off. You're fucking master chief at high charity and you've got your cloak on, right? And it's about to go off and all these elites are about to see you for my Halo fans out there. And it's the charade <laughs> is about to be over. Dude, there's about to be a lot of gunfire everywhere and excitement. I was really wondering what the fuck you were talking about with hey, Master Chief. My Halo, like, Halo fans will know what I'm saying here. <laughs> I point played is, it. Yeah, I point, is, point is, it has been an amazing opportunity for the last few years. This, this asset has been really significantly undervalued because it's been equated there. And if you're one of these people that doesn't understand this yet, especially on Wall Street, you're looking at this thing and just saying, this is a psychopathic zombie that will not die. What is it doing? And my last comment here, Josh and I were sort of economics, finance, interest first, Bitcoin second. And when I first started at the department and Josh and I started to get close, and even in the beginning, as we discovered Bitcoin back in 2017, we were talking at that time about debt dynamics way before COVID hit. Back to you kind of talking about things changing. To me, after these six years, the value proposition of Bitcoin is so much more brightly illuminated than it was even when we first got in. If you look at sovereign debt dynamics, deglobalization dynamics, it is just so much more plainly obvious right now. And this is what just gets me I try to contain myself, but just kind of absurdly bullish at times is you've got proof of concept, more years of this thing just churning out and doing what it's supposed to, and more public understanding for why we need a decentralized, censorship-resistant, global neutral reserve asset that's digital and instantly settleable. If you're a Bitcoiner, the math can get a little weird. Are you seeing, John, more people start to really put the pieces together, or is the reality that most folks just aren't. I get to see firsthand people putting those pieces together every week in my role at Swan. So that part is pretty unique and, and very cool that I every single week I get to talk to new people from different industries, different ages, all across the US, outside the US. Um, they've made their money in different ways. Uh, they have different understandings of finance and economics. They're at different points in their Bitcoin journey. So I get to see that firsthand I, so, so on the one hand, I, I, um, I want to answer yes, like, you know, it's happening because it is happening. But at the same time, zooming out, I still think it's, it's early days. Like the vast, vast majority of people are not, it's just not on their radar whatsoever. Mm. And the, you know, people on Wall Street who you would think could understand this, even I'll, like one thing I'll, I'll, I'll try to, one angle I try to play with people on Wall Street is just a portfolio diversification angle. Like, and an upside risk reward type thing. These are two concepts that should resonate with people who manage money for a living. <laughs> and I, I, I laugh because it's like you can't get through to them. Diversification in terms of having an asset that behaves, it, it's outside the system. Diversification in the sense of like, you don't have all your assets at SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, that's, that's diversifying. But then also diversifying in the sense that it, it's not a stock. It doesn't. Ha it's not subject to the same factors that are going to cause it to go up and down. It's not bonds. Um, it's even a little bit different than gold. You would think that should play well with them, um, but it doesn't. And then the risk reward thing of like, hey, if you allocate one percent of your assets to this and it does go to zero, 
you lose one percent. Yeah, like do, you you're supposed to be able to understand That's- the upside optionality here. Um, credit to a guy Bob Bob Elliott who was just on um, Swan Signal with Sam Callahan. He at least a- acknowledged he's not a Bitcoin fan by any means, but he drew the comparison to Uber and he was like, "Hey, if you would have told someone ten years ago." you're barely ever going to take a taxi ever again because you're going to have this app on your phone that tells you where the car is. You're going to click a few buttons and it's going to show up. And you're going to do that 90% of the time and only take a taxi if, if you can't get an Uber. They would have said, you're crazy. Um, but that was the upside to investing in something like Uber. And he just compared it. He said, even if you don't believe that this Bitcoin thing has a great chance of working out, why not like dip a toe in? Right. Um, so again, it's just frustrating because that seems all so logical to me. But even with people who manage money for a living, it's hard to get through to them with that argument. Yeah, I have found personally that w- the argument that works best, or not argument, but just the example that works best for people that are most resistant to this idea is the portfolio consisting of 99% cash and 1% Bitcoin, that that outperformed the S&P 500 over the last 14 years. Um, and in any four year time frame that you choose. So giving them the ability to go, oh, wait a second, I can choose any time frame in this period of time and I'll outperform with 99% exposure to cash. That really turns light bulbs on for people. Because I mean, obviously the risk reward there is amazing. This is where messing around with Nakamoto portfolio is cool. It really is. Yes. Uh, just seeing exactly. the different you plug in in different things, different strategies and going, man, there's really no way to spin this. Even if you start in at the worst possible times for Bitcoin, you have ended up ahead every single time. It, it, I think it was Callahan or no, who was it that tweeted this? I don't remember. He's actually coming on next week, by the way. Nice. Uh, but somebody was just saying from Swan was saying, if you started averaging in at the all time high of 69,000 and you've put in every day, and this was like a week or two ago, you were up 33%. So now you're probably up like fucking, you know, 38% or something. I saw somebody, somebody tweeted something similar to that yesterday. And they said, I think 50%, but either way, you're up substantially, even if you bought from the high. John, I want to ask you about the culture shock um, you must have experienced going from Goldman Sachs for 13 years to Swan. What kind of Christmas party is Swan throwing? Where, how many midgets do you guys have? Corey, where's our fucking invitation? And where's our invitation? <laughs> well, the equivalent of Swan's Christmas party has got to be Pacific Bitcoin, which uh, is a good time for sure the record. Is. Everyone, uh, you know, shout out to Pacific Bitcoin. I would say this one's actually pretty easy and uh, to answer in terms of like culture shock because I was a little bit worried about it. I was like, I've only worked at one firm 13 years. Uh, it's a firm where there's a lot of type A people, high performers. And I was like, I'm not really sure what other companies at all are like, let alone this startup in the Bitcoin world. And just very pleasantly surprised really from day one with the quality of people in terms of work ethic, work product, um, just like super impressive. And when you looked at people who have joined Swan, they have spent time at very successful companies um, themselves, whether it's in finance, whether it's in tech, whether it's in consulting. Um, so there's just a ton of people who basically came from another type A company that produced real products, had real success, and now they're doing the same thing at Swan. And just to, um, you know, we were talking earlier about it's easy for Bitcoiners to trash Wall Street and people who work on Wall Street. But one thing just to give Wall Street credit for, what they're really good at doing 
we kind of said it, but executing in, in their specialty, they're very good at, okay, client comes in with a specific ask and we need to analyze everything and produce a deck and present it to them and say, here's all the things you should be considering. Um, Wall Street is really, really good at that and doing it under pressure and under tight deadlines. So credit to Wall Street for doing a good job there. But in terms of the execution of things at Swan, like it, you know, pretty, pretty close, like really good in terms of people getting things done, responsiveness. Um, there, you know, there's never been a time where I was like, oh, I'm working with people who just aren't as passionate as, as at Goldman. Um, but I think Swan also has something going for it where everyone who's working there is deeply passionate about Bitcoin. Yes. So that, that just adds this huge motivation that not only do you want to grow the startup that you're working at, but you actually care about what you're doing. And I know it's cliche, quote, quote unquote, make the world a better place. But like that, that's why one of the, that's the main reason that people are in Bitcoin. because we actually do think it'll improve not just the economic system, but all the system, you know, fix the money, fix the world, economic system, art, architecture, science, healthcare, food system, education, energy. When you actually believe that the thing you're working on is going to improve all of those mm. things, that's a lot of motivation right there. I think what you just said is very important for people to consider. If you're younger and you're thinking about a career, you don't have to work in Bitcoin, but you should definitely be doing something that you want to show up for, that you feel like you're making a difference in the world. Because I can tell you from experience, I've worked at places where I've seen the cubicle farms. I've seen these people who don't have any real dog in the fight. They're just mercenaries. They're just there because they need to be there to get paid and they don't believe in necessarily what they're doing. They just have to keep trudging along. And those people, <laughs> you spend 20 years in a gray cubicle staring at a computer screen and you don't enjoy what you're doing and you don't believe in the concept of whatever the company's aims are, you're not going to be a healthy, happy person. You're going to be a miserable, miserable person. So make sure you aim and align those things as best you can. I think another thought here is how important company and organizational culture are. Like they're, they're a really, really big deal. I remember I had a buddy that worked at LinkedIn in the city. This is kind of back to your Discover thing. And I'm sure there was some, you know, back to the Christmas parties and stuff at Goldman. But I was like, I cannot believe they're spending this much money. And, and people like to you know, pick on these frilly millennials, but on coffee shops and the food and everything. But it creates a vibe where people want to come into work. They like being part of the organization. Motivation is a fickle thing. And I'm thinking about the parallels to, to firefighting. Different departments, morale is very different. Some cultures are toxic and unhealthy. Others are really uplifting. You get a lot more production. I feel like the place we're at, the culture is really healthy right now. And guess what? You get higher level customer service from your paramedics. You get more buy-in from everybody top to bottom. And a lot of it just comes down to getting the right people. I know Swan spends a lot of time vetting everybody that gets into the organization. You got to find the right fits because man, it's one of those things that when you have it, you take it for granted. And when the culture gets sideways, you, you see it right away. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So I've, I've just been very pleasantly surprised with the culture at Swan. Good people at the top all, all the way through. A lot of respect for my coworkers at Swan. Yeah. John, here's a thought uh, from, from your writing that I think is especially applicable to our demographic. And you write, Bitcoin could reestablish the line between saving and investing. 
I want to riff on this and hear you elaborate on what you mean here um, about this this reestablishment of these lines and why this could be so important kind of for the average person. Yeah. So out of all the reasons I'm passionate about Bitcoin, this is has got to be towards the top. And what I mean by reestablishing the line between saving and investing is that those are two distinct actions, or they should be in a sane, sound money world. And the vast majority of people, and this is a huge blind spot of Wall Street, because you have to put yourself in the shoes of someone who sits in front of a Bloomberg terminal all day, all week. They're like, oh yeah, what, what's the problem about managing your personal account and becoming an investor? Well, the problem is that the vast majority of any country does not work in the financial sector. Yes. And they don't want to spend any of their time analyzing their investments and trading the market with short-term, medium, or long-term. If whatever industry, uh, careers you want to take, firefighters, cops, teachers, uh, Uber drivers, um, anyone who works in the sciences, and all every other industry besides financial services, generally speaking, those people want to do a good job at work. And think about all the things that go into that. You had to, from being a kid, you had to do a good job in school. You had to listen to your parents. You had to get into a good school. You had to do well, um, graduate, convince an employer to hire you. Now you're at this company. You have to show well, earn your paycheck, move up at the company. That's a huge, huge accomplishment for anyone. And, and obviously not everyone works at a company. You could start your own business, whatever, whatever. But you make it to the point where you're earning a paycheck. We shouldn't throw another thing on them that says, oh, and now if you actually want to keep the value of that paycheck, you now need to become a semi-professional investor on the side. It's, it's ridiculous. And, and I think one of the common retorts, like if we were having this conversation with a bunch of legacy finance people and we said this, they would be like, well, you don't really have to. You can you know, trust someone else to do it. And the issue with that is, and they should know better because we, we even talk about this, that in the whole like, uh, this is kind of related to the efficient market hypothesis. It's just as hard to pick winning investments as it is to pick a manager who's going to pick the winning investments for you. If I could analyze the manager successfully enough to know that he or she is a great manager and is going to be knocking it out of the park going forward, like by definition, I have to have enough knowledge to know their process of what they're mm. doing and why they're going to be successful. Then like you basically have to be an investor anyway. You're just outsourcing the execution yeah. to them. Yep. So the firefighter who's you know doing a good job at work, earning his paycheck and just wants to go home and, 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 and build his savings and spend time with his family should not have to do all that and be subject to these risks. Um, and this gets into a whole conversation about passive investing and like why that's been successful. The TLDR there, if someone says, well, hey, they could just invest passively, I would say, sure, that has been true for the last 10 to 15 years. You look at what SPY or QQQ has done, it's pretty nuts. It's roughly like 10 to 15% on average per year what those have returned. But you have to think about what made that possible. And I would argue that look at 2008, look at 2020 as the biggest points. If we didn't get massive fiscal and monetary bailouts in both of those cases, the people who were passively investing would have lost their shirt. And one stat that I love to share with people is that the 1929 market high for the S&P 500, everyone knows that's you know, one of the famous crashes in, in US stock market history, 
it took until 1955 for the S&P 500 to regain its high in 1929. Now that's just nominal. That doesn't include dividends. I couldn't find the stat with dividends. So if you include the dividends you would have earned, Man. you probably make your money back at some point before 1955, but not, not that much before, right? So let's just say you, ha- you would have had to wait 20 to 25 years for if you invested at the wrong time to get back in the black. Yeah. That's closer to what real investing should be. Now we're getting used to this environment of anytime the markets get overheated yes. and they're supposed to sell off, Fed and Treasury come in and basically bail out the markets. That's, that's why passive investing has been successful. So to just give the answer of like, oh, you don't need to know, just invest passively. You're basically telling them, hey, put your life savings on the line, thinking that the Fed and the Treasury are going to bail you out every time something bad happens. Yeah. Well said, man. You mentioned having to be your own investor. And I listened, I used to listen to Preston and Stig all the time when they did the show together. They would read a book, they would review the book. Good times. Like I, I like to go back and listen to some of those old episodes sometimes. But in that period of time from like maybe 2014 and 15, I was very, very much into understanding Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett because they, you know, they based their entire podcast on we study billionaires, and those were the billionaires that they focused on a lot. And going down that rabbit hole, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham was a book that they recommended because I think Graham wrote that book in like the 30s or something. So I, I always like to try to read books or find books that are kind of fundamental. And I felt like looking across the spectrum of investing books, that was like a fundamental book that I should read. And reading that book was so horrific for me and for probably most 95% of people because understanding the way that you have to analyze these things, if you want to get really deep in the weeds, it's just not for the 99% of people that are not working on Wall Street and aren't managing funds. like This is not the kind of thing you want to do with your free time. Back to your point, John, you just want to do whatever it is you do, enjoy your family, invest passively, or if you're lucky, you find something to be a quasi-expert on and you focus on that more finely. There's another investor that I can't think off the top of my head, but he said something to the effect of the idea of kind of spreading out your investments or being diversified. He's like, I like to have a small, it might've been Charlie Munger, but I'm not sure. I like to have a small basket and watch it very closely. And that one resonates with me quite a bit, especially because Bitcoin makes up a decent amount of my portfolio. Having a small basket of things that you are very or fairly knowledgeable about that you can watch very closely. Uh, that's a that's a trajectory that works for me personally. The the other problem with an increasingly manipulated fiat monetary system, to piggyback on your point, John, is that it doesn't reward the people that are actually good at investing. Like so back to the Preston and Stig point, as Preston Pish has said for a long time, he's basically hung up the coat, the 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 value investing coat until the cost of capital is more accurately repriced because the the approach of actually analyzing productive companies and figuring out where to allocate capital is basically lost in an environment where people are incentivized to turn their brains off, play the Fed put, and decide where the next batch of money is going to come out of the spigot. Oversimplified, but this is the root of misallocation of capital in a flimsy money environment. And I, I do firmly believe that in a harder, more sound money environment, good investors are, are hopefully going to be rewarded properly. 
and not everybody to the points you make, John, is just going to be forced to jam every single free cent they have into investments. I think the risk component is key here. People that are passively, you know, just buying index funds in all of their retirement accounts and everything outside their checking account, they are mostly naive. Many of them are naive to the risks that could befall them here in an environment where fixed income doesn't have an endless upward trajectory for 30 years. It's a completely different environment. You, I think my main message to people is you're just going to need to pay more attention. You're going to need to get more creative might be the right word because the, the, the playbook is not going to be executed in the same way it has been for the last 30 years, in my humble opinion. For sure. For sure. And yeah, the way I would summarize just the saving versus investing stuff that we're talking about is it being a true investor, taking on the risk of the added benefit that comes from successful investing is a full-time job. Mm. So anyone who claims that that is something that everyone should do is effectively claiming that, hey, you should have two full-time jobs. And then I would just underscore the point that I'm, what I'm not saying is that investing is categorically a bad thing. I think it's, it's fantastic. It's necessary for us to grow our economy and create, you know, new jobs, new industries, increase our material wealth, but it has to come with the risk of loss. Otherwise it's not real investing. So just give people the option to save their money. It's up to them if they want to take some of that money or all of that money and then take an additional risk with it to grow it further. A another way to say this is the fact that investing should come with an increased gain, right? If you just take two people, one person just saves their money, the other person invests it. If the other person does it successfully, he or she deserves to have an increased gain. But that fact doesn't mean that just saving money, should you should get debased for that, for that action. And that's where, where I think things are lost. It's not a requirement for investing. Investing should give you an increased gain. Doesn't mean that saving should make you lose money. Totally agreed. Um, let's get bullish here for the last section of this. I want to hear your thoughts on <laughs> your crystal ball. Where's Bitcoin going from here? Things have been looking very good, almost too good in the last month or two where you, know, you kind of expect to see a pullback anytime and you're almost surprised when you <laughs> don't. For it's sure. so counter cyclical for me though. Like anytime that I'm like, man, and I, I tweeted this the other day, like I really want to leverage some Bitcoin here, but I, I know, I just know fundamentally from making bad decisions over, <laughs> over the last six years that that is the worst time to do it whenever I want to. And the opposite is always true as well. Like when I'm like, oh fuck, like things are going bad and I want to sell. That's exactly the time to be buying. But I guess really what I'm asking here is over the next couple of years, we have so many things that are moving in pro Bitcoin camp right now. We've got this ETF thing kind of floating out there, very likely to happen. We've got the halving coming up in April. We've got the Fed that has paused, you know, increasing uh, interest rates and they're going to level out and very likely start lowering them in the next couple of years. All these are tailwinds for Bitcoin. It seems like it could get really weird in a good way. <laughs> How weird is it going to get, John? Yeah. So I wrote down some thoughts on this and I just wanted to make sure I'm not missing anything here. So to tick through these reasons to be bullish on Bitcoin's price, spot Bitcoin ETF is the obvious one. Looks like it's likely to have some sort of approval in the near term. 
general institutional acceptance, the fact that you have Larry Fink and BlackRock singing the praises of Bitcoin, it reflects a huge move forward um, from what we talked about that they were saying five, six years ago. You have the Bitcoin halving, which I know is very controversial. People have different opinions within Bitcoin about how much effect it has on price. But at least historically speaking, it has been associated with increases in price. Um, I think there's just more awareness of the unsustainable path of the U.S. fiscal situation, yes. the amount of debt that we're adding, the pace that we're adding it at, the fact that the interest cost for the U.S. is increasing. There seems to be more awareness about that. Um, the Fed seems to be done hiking rates. I'm not sure if they're going to cut or when they're going to cut. Hard to predict, but for now, they at least seem to be pausing, and that's typically good for all financial assets. Um I think that you have to mention the significant selling pressure we saw in 2022 is now behind us, whether it was miners selling, whether it was these entities that were collapsing and causing this kind of self-reinforcing cycle of then price goes down and more people are selling. That seems to be in the past. So just the fact that we don't have that selling pressure to me is uh, a bullish mm -hmm. indicator. Yeah. Um, Obviously, the fact that I see all these individuals and entities making new allocations at Swan, that like, through you know through Swan and my one-to-one -one conversations with them, that's pretty bullish. Um, if Bitcoin ends the year, let's just say it ends where it is right now, and you look at the last ten calendar years of macro asset performance, Bitcoin's going to be at the top of that list for seven out of ten years. And that doesn't mean that financial advisors and institutional investors are immediately going to adopt it overnight, but you're starting to build this track record where it's just hard to ignore. Like you're going to have to have a view on it. If you don't want to allocate half a percent or a percent to it, you're now going to have to have a good reason. And you can't just say because it's a tulip bubble that that doesn't work anymore. One other thing to add on all that is that exchange volume or the amount held at exchanges is is very low right now especially going into potentially a bull market typically if you look at this through the past like in the last two years there's been a massive drawdown out of these exchanges which is massively bullish because it seems to give the indication that a lot of people are understanding hey i don't want to keep this at exchanges and if you are going to hold this for the quote-unquote longer term an exchange is not where you want to be it seems like that's number one being understood and they are pulling a lot of bitcoin out of these exchanges to hold for what looks like the longer term so supply diminishing yeah convicted holder base i think that that kind of speaks to this like underlying education and adoption trend that, should, that we all know is happening because of the great content you guys put out the conversations with you have you guys have with people one-to-one -one. like we know that's just kind of building over time and you can see it through through metrics like that um last two things on the list of reasons to be bullish for bitcoin um Argentina, I would say, is is at least worthy of a mention. No, I'm not saying that they're going to become the next El Salvador and declared to be legal tender, you know, next week. Not saying that, but just the fact that you have a libertarian presidential uh, now he's now he is the president. He's going to say candidate. He feels he was the candidate for so long. Um, he got elected. He's an outspoken critic of central banks. Uh, he has said favorable things on Bitcoin, even if they don't make it legal tender. They're uh, 45 million people, I believe, is their population, 23rd largest economy in the world. That's going to spur some, at least, awareness of Bitcoin. Um, I think it's you know worth mentioning. I'm more excited for the potential that he actually kills the central bank there and see what kind of aftermath comes out of that. Because that is a move in the modern world. 
I can't think of the last time something like that's happened. The world's going to watch what happens here very closely because this whole mysterious like central bank has to control things. Otherwise, the whole thing just fucking flies apart. And, you know, at the speed of light, we're going to find out and the whole world's going to pay attention to what exactly happens and shakes out of that. Because if they can move and be into the positive territory after having removed the central bank, that's what I'm interested to see what happens after the central bank if they actually do kill it. Where does where does this thing go in the next three or four years? And I think a lot of people are interested in that. Yeah, I mean, if I, having seen Javier Malay talk, it's it's very obvious he's going to fuck around, and we're going to see what happens when he finds out. <laughs> I hope he brings the chainsaw into the central bank and starts cutting desks in half. That would be pretty epic. I agree, though. That's a good point to bring up. So much skepticism towards any politician on the planet from the Bitcoin community, but you're talking about a G20 country and and just evidence of a big move in global public perception and discourse and understanding about inflationary dynamics, fiat currency, and debt problems. It's it's a it's a pretty big deal, for sure. For sure. Yeah. It's it's worth mentioning at the least and and seeing what happens there. And then the last one on the list um is just all the technical innovations that are happening on Bitcoin right now. And you could this is like a wide range of things you could talk about here. <clears throat> whether it's like arc mini script covenants like things that are just going to make the user experience better and more broad but even experiences like any anyone who's coming up with better experience for hardware wallets making it easier for people to take self custody better lightning wallets ab- abstracting away the complexities behind the scenes multi sig collaborative custody just making it less daunting for people to interact with bitcoin we all know that there's these many companies working on this. So that to me is another positive. And that actually makes me think to share kind of this overarching view that I have about Bitcoin, which is if you were to ask me my degree of confidence as to Bitcoin becoming uh, sound money in the sense that it's at least a better version of gold, I would say high, high degree of confidence that that happens. And I would remind people that right now, Bitcoin is about one fifteenth the market cap of gold. So tremendous upside, even if it just becomes a slightly better version of gold. But I probably speak for many Bitcoiners when I say this, we don't want that to be the ceiling on Bitcoin to just be a slightly better version of gold. Ideally, you want 8 billion people to be using the Bitcoin unit at the very least if they're not using bitcoin on chain for everyday payments that that's the ultimate future for bitcoin and we talked earlier about you know being open to things and not being so fixated in our views and 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 being open out things might change i think we as as bitcoiners do need to be open to how will bitcoin scale to 8 billion people yes. out there because it's it's not a 100% clear roadmap as to how that happens people have different opinions for it um, so I just, that's something that Bitcoin scaling is like a rabbit hole of its own. There's obviously people who are much further down that rabbit hole than I am. Um, but that's kind of how I think about it. It's not as if I'm like worried about Bitcoin's future again, because Bitcoin is still one fifteenth the market cap of gold. But n- now I'm just talking like long term. Yeah. Um, what are things to look out for in, in Bitcoin's future? Mm. Before we let you go, John, I really do want to hear you explore this even quickly because you've written a piece on it and and I think it's it's a common theme for a lot of skeptics who have some understanding of markets. It's this idea that 
what makes Bitcoin so much different than gold? You're saying it's going to really make inroads in terms of moving us towards sound money. Why isn't it going to suffer the same fate as gold? What's your answer to somebody that has this rebuttal? So I'm trying to write a piece on this. And anytime you put pen to paper, you really organize your own thoughts and, and it just helps a lot. So I'm in the process of writing that now. But what I would say is, I think Bitcoiners are aware, if you just ask people, why is Bitcoin better than gold? Most Bitcoiners would give you the answer, which is correct, better portability. But when you really start to examine what that means, there is a lot of depth to look at there. Like what exactly does better portability mean? And what does it protect against in terms of potential capture by governments and central banks? Because that's ultimately what happened to gold. It got captured by governments and central banks. And then whoops, one day you have this monetary system where the base layer is gold. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're not exchanging gold, but it was the base layer. And then they say, you know what? We don't really need that base layer anymore. Right. You know, we, we're literally just changing the definition. A dollar used to be describable in gold. And now we're saying, by the way, we're taking that away. You guys are still going to use dollars, but there's no more gold. We do need to be cautious and say to ourselves, okay, let's make sure we're not going into a situation where Bitcoin just becomes another gold. So it's really exploring that portability. And the obvious one is... Okay, if, if you had to send uh, a, a large amount of money, let's call it $10 million to another person across the world, and you had to do it, you could choose to do it in Bitcoin or you could choose to do it in ounces of physical gold. Um, which one are you going to choose and why? Which one's easier? The answer is obvious it's easier to do it with Bitcoin. But for this example, let's just say that the cost, the mo just the transaction fee is the same. Let, let's say it's let's say on-chain fees have have gone crazy, right? And it's it's fifty thousand dollars to send ten million dollars worth of Bitcoin, just for this example. And let's also say it costs fifty thousand dollars to send the gold. So so the the monetary cost is exactly the same of the two. You would still easily choose Bitcoin because you can do it digitally. You can do it from home. You don't have to hire a team of security experts to move it. It'll settle in an hour. Um, you don't have to worry about the execution risk of sending all the gold. So just even if we only have plain Jane on-chain Bitcoin, it still reflects this huge advantage over gold. And then I think you start to add in these other layers, whether it's Lightning, whether it's ARC, um, whether it's Covenants, and then you start to say, okay, I think this system is starting to get pretty resistant to centralization and capture. So that's what I'll try to be exploring in that in that article. But um, even just thinking about it, even if you don't say we have Lightning, we have Arc, we have all these other innovations, there's reasons to say why Bitcoin would be significantly more resistant to capture than gold. In the other obvious thing to throw in there, we haven't felt this yet because we're not to the next epoch, but Bitcoin is significantly more scarce than the scarcest commodity in existence, that being gold. And we're going to feel that more and more as havings march on. Humanity has not yet grappled with the implications of absolutely algorithmically scarce commodity. Even just from a, if demand keeps flooding in, supply constraints are not something that you have any, any comparison for. And that could do things to price that surprise you even when you're used to looking at how scarce something like gold is. 
That's what's so ingenious about the way this thing was designed. Whether or not Satoshi saw this far into the future to realize like the implications of each of these epochs flooding people into the market because they're excited by the price. I like to think that he probably was, but man, what a fucking genius way this was all set up. It's it's just astounding when you really think about the way that the incentives are aligned to just draw people into this thing. For sure. For sure. There's there's one more thing I wanted to share with you guys. Please do. Um, it's a stat that it talks about things that happen on Wall Street and just how difficult it is to predict the future, but then also how obvious some things look in hindsight after it's played out. So this is a stat that I came across when I was at Goldman managing portfolios of corporate bonds. And we would inherit portfolios from our clients sometimes. So we had to manage it going forward, but we're not the ones who built the portfolio. And there was a client who gave us a portfolio that had a bond in it that was JCPenney 2097. So you heard that correct. That means JCPenney <laughs> issued a bond that matures in the year 2097. What year was it issued? Do you know? 1997. So they issued a hundred year bond. Um, about seven and a half percent was the coupon. Bonds are issued at at par. So, you know, issued at $100, you get a seven and a half percent coupon for a hundred years, unless the company goes bankrupt. So I looked at that and just said, wow, that's amazing. In 1997, people actually thought JCPenney was a good bet to be around for a hundred years. And I looked at my Bloomberg to see the, the industry and say, um, what were other bonds that were issued in 1997 for a hundred years? And FedEx issued in 1997, a hundred year bond and about almost exactly the same coupon, right around seven and a half. So, I, and, and uh, I probably don't need to say this, but JCPenney has since declared bankruptcy. The bond was trading like, you know, went just kept going lower, 80, 70, 60 cents on the dollar. Whereas FedEx, people still believe FedEx will be around until 2097. But in 1997, the market, all these sophisticated investors thought that, that those two companies had the same prospects for being around 100 years from now. That seems ridiculous to us, but it wasn't. It, it was not obvious at the time. So I just look at that and say, it probably feels obvious to us that Bitcoin has this very bright future ahead, but to most people, they're, they're not looking at it. And it might look obvious in hindsight, but it's, it's not on most people's radars. Mm, that is 100 years. It's a long time. I can't help myself, but the flip side of that is also <laughs> not fun to think about either. We might all be completely fucking wrong. And this is all clown, clown <laughs> yeah. show in 100 years, but I very, very much <laughs> doubt that. I just had to throw it in there because you just don't know, man. Totally possible, though. You gotta have that humility. Bitcoin could sound as dumb as JCPenney in 30 years. <laughs> 100 years is a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's that is one takeaway from that. John, this was fantastic, man. Really enjoyed talking to you. Love your pieces. Um, we'll de- obviously give an intro to you in the episode intro, but talk to us about what you're up to, Swan Private, anything you want here as we close. For sure. Real quick, Swan Private, that's our high net worth offering. So just one-to-one service for people who are looking to get allocated to Bitcoin. The reality is that some people may have made their money in other industries. They could self-teach and learn everything about Bitcoin they need to, but some people don't have the time or energy to do that. So we're kind of like an advisor and a consultant for them 
on their Bitcoin journey, and people seem to find it very helpful. Uh, people can find more of my content and thoughts on Twitter. I'm at John underscore at underscore Swan. And I'm going to try to be more active on LinkedIn soon, just because I have a huge network of TradFi people there. Uh, so I'll be sharing more content on LinkedIn. And every now and then I'll, I'll try to write an article that I think is helpful for the Bitcoin community. So that's what I'd say there. Awesome. Appreciate you, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, uh, thanks for joining us. Congrats on the new baby. Best of luck. Keep grinding. It's worth every minute, which you've already made the realization of, I'm sure. For sure. Thanks, guys. Love talking with you. Well, folks, that's a wrap. I honestly think this was one of my personal favorite conversations of the entire year. It is absolutely remarkable how much legacy finance has changed their tune on Bitcoin without even really knowing it. I anticipate that in the next 10 years, that tune will have shifted in an equally dramatic fashion to the last 10. For those of you listening who understand Bitcoin's unique and powerful value proposition, be grateful. Time will tell. But for those who stay patient and disciplined, this could truly be the financial opportunity of a lifetime. If you are liking this show, do us a serious favor and like and subscribe. In particular, we can legitimately expand our reach from podcast reviews and subscribers on YouTube. If you haven't checked us out on the Fountain app, you should. Get your feet wet on the Lightning Network and earn free Bitcoin for just listening to us blabber. There is no catch. Until next week, keep stacking and front-running Wall Street. Thank <laughs> you.